You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 3rd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. More than 100 people die in two explosions in Iran. France's president heads into 2024 with a paralysed parliament. I'm Emma Nelson. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests, Philippe Marlier and Attica Raymond, will join me to discuss the day's biggest stories, including why Poland's parliament is becoming a must-watch among younger voters and... I will see y'all in Paris. Bonjour! Oui, oui. What do we, we mean? Yes, yes. yes. Oui, oui. Oui, oui. <laughs> <laughs> The snoop D-O-double-G himself joins NBC as a commentator at this year's Paris Olympics. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. And we begin today with the news that more than 100 people have been killed in two explosions in the Iranian city of Kaman. It happened during a ceremony to mark the anniversary of the death of one of the country's top commanders in the US drone strike in 2020. Well, joining me for the latest is Arash Azizi, who's a historian at Clemson University and author of the book What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom. A very good evening to you, Arash. Good evening. It's great to be with you. So just explain to us, we we have occurring in the last few hours two blasts in quick succession at an important uh, event, aren't we? What's happened? Yeah, there were two blasts today at the memorial um, for Qasem Soleimani, this leading Iranian general who was assassinated four years ago on this day. So this was an important anniversary of his assassination by a U.S. drone strike um, in 2020. Uh, He was killed. And this was the assassination in the southern city of, of Kerman. Um, uh, this was the memorial for him. And there were two blasts. Um, and that, unfortunately, have killed more than 103 people by the time I'm speaking to you now, which makes it uh, you know, one of the deadliest, if not the deadliest, terror attack on Iranian territory ever. Do we know who's behind it? The short answer is that we don't. The authorities also have not pointed fingers uh, at anybody. So it's a bit of a speculation. But my, uh, if, if you will, informed and educated the speculation based on uh, the methodology, based on the target chosen, based on some of the facts, and based on me speaking to some of the experts uh, today, uh, points the finger as, as you know, as sort of a first possibility for me is uh, on ISIS, uh, particularly the uh, branch of this group called ISIS Khorasan, the branch of the group in, in Afghanistan. Um, which I believe is the most likely culprit at the moment. Um, already the um, the leader of Iran's Quds force, uh, Esmail Khani, has, has already said that um, his country has been attacked with the support of Israel and the United States. I mean, this immediately opens up the whole blame game to something which is geopolitically very, very volatile. Yes, um, you know, we, you know there, there's a... There are different sorts of blames that that can be um, that can be made. Obviously, Israel is part of the regional equation. Now, Israel and Iran are have been in a uh, shadow war with each other for years, but particularly since the attacks uh, of October seventh and and the you know following the war with Israel, I say a shadow war because as as you know, Hamas, uh, which perpetrated the attacks on October seventh, and several other groups that have been involved in a clash with Israel, that's Hezbollah in Lebanon, Houthis in Yemen. Um, and the Syrian government, whose territory has been the site of Israeli attacks, these are all part of an axis um, that is supported by 
by the Iranian regime. So naturally, it would be, uh, you know, it would come up there. But importantly, the Iranian officials so far have not really cast a direct blame on Israel to say, you know, Israel did the attacks of today. And I've said that you're investigating, the investigating is going on while repeating sort of general uh, sort of general uh, rhetorical points about Israel and U.S. being uh, the grand enemies. But they haven't pointed a particular finger yet. And I think that's very important because if they do, then, of course, there will be expectations for um, retaliation on part of Iran. Khamenei, the Supreme Leader of Iran, promised what he called a harsh retaliation, as he has uh, done before in the past as well. So they'll be quite careful as to how they'll manage this escalation because um, they might, uh, you know, it would not be in their interest either. The fact remains is that condolences have come from all places. Um, everyone from the United Nations chief, Antonio Guterres, has condemned the attack at, at El. We, we, I mentioned the leader of the Quds Force within Iran, but also Lebanon, Jordan, Pakistan have all been um, condemning what has happened here. Uh, indeed, the Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has offered his condolences too. These, and the European Union as well. Yeah, the European Union also condemned, which, uh, which is important. These are all countries and, and organisations which have complicated relationships with Iran. Not always the most productive ones. What do you think an event like this could do in terms of allying people together and, and obviously offering very needed support to Iran? Um, I mean, you know, condemning terrorism and terror attacks on civilians, no matter where their sources is important. And, um, you know, it's good in moments like this. As I mentioned, the fact that the European Union would, would quickly do it as well, um, uh, you know, is important. And, and you know, that, that's something you look out for. Um, but also, um, you know, there is a there is a there is a danger of escalation, and it has been there really in the past few months. And when we're talking about escalation, we're not just talking about a basic a sort of Middle East conflict. A a sort of an all-out Iran-Israel war will be one of the greatest catastrophes the world has seen um, in in decades, if you ask me. And I really don't mean any hyperbole. If we really start thinking about the dimension, start thinking about uh, the Red Sea and the Hormuz Strait, these are bodies of water between Iran and Israel, roughly, um, uh, which, you know, so much of most important international shipping goes there. Already the attacks by this Iran-backed group called Houthis in Yemen have meant that if you look at the maps, already the Red Sea has seen much less shipping traffic. Um, and of course, on a human level, this could be absolutely terrible. All sorts of escape cells might be uh, activated. Any attacks on Iranian territory can lead to uh, a lot of casualties. So, um, there is a very, there is a danger of, of such a conflict, of that shadow war that I spoke about turning out into an all-out war. And I think we need uh, responsible leadership um, from uh, regional countries and, and also from the international community to really stop uh, such a possibility. And, um, you know, that's a sort of important mindset to have, not only in the aftermath of this attack, which, which, is, which is quite terrible uh, sort of on a human level, um, but in the aftermath of whatever else comes uh, in the next few weeks, of course, there's still there's the Israeli campaign going on in Gaza, which has killed more than 20, 22,000 Palestinians there. And, you know, that continues and that sort of sees no end in sight. Um, there's a possibility of Israel uh, getting to a more direct conversation with Lebanon only a couple of days ago. They've killed one of the Hamas leaders in Beirut. So it's very important to have that in mind and to try to ward off in every way that uh, it's possible against the broader and conflagration in this region. Arash Azizi, historian at Clemson University and author of the book, What Iranians Want, Women, Life, Freedom. Thank you so much for joining us on the Monocle Daily. Well, 
Joining me in the studio, I'm delighted to say I'm welcoming Philippe Marlier, who's Professor of French and European Politics at University College London, and Attica Raymond, UK correspondent for Dawn, the Pakistani English language newspaper. Very good afternoon, good evening, I should say, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Attica, can I just brief, briefly bring you in just to talk a little bit about what we've just heard? And two things that, that, that sort of stand out there is that, firstly, that the first thing that, that Arash said was, well, we, 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 we understand that those who carried out this attack are ISIS, based in Afghanistan. But secondly, we have what he was talking about, the threat of the, threat of the shadow war that rumbles between Israel and Iran that could, so, and, and the United States as well, that could uh, spill over into something really quite terrifying and, and that responsible leadership is needed here. No, absolutely. And I think uh, this will spill over into Pakistan. And we're already seeing what the destabilization in Afghanistan has done uh, in, in Pakistan, especially with uh, the Taliban government. Uh, terror attacks in Pakistan have been on the rise. Uh, and a destable Iran is in no way uh, favorable for Pakistan. We're heading into an election in Pakistan in February. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. Um, and, and obviously, the, 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 the violence along ethnic lines, because uh, Iran is a Shia majority country, it spills, it spills over into uh, Pakistan because Pakistan has uh, a significant uh, Shia population as well. And just bringing in the European side, Philippe, I mean, it, uh, Arash was keen to say, look, we, we, ha- we had common animation from the European Union as well. And the European Union has such a complicated, difficult relationship with Iran now, doesn't it? Yes, it's always been a, a, a problem for, for, for the EU, I think, to, to, to manage a, a, and, and, and have a good relationship with Iran, I think, with the, all the main actors in the region. And we, we're seeing it at the moment with the uh, Israel-Palestine war conflict, uh, where, as we know, uh, Iran uh, also uh, in the background uh, pu- pulling some of the strings and, 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 and the EU finds it extremely hard uh, to, to read the map and... and, and, and and do uh, that's that's always been the problem of the EU, you know, talking with one voice on on su- on such a complicated uh, uh, international I- issues. Um, let's bring in more complicated domestic issues, shall we? As we, we sort of plunge into our discussion points for today's program, um, France's president has promised what he's called a meeting with the nation later this month. Well, Emmanuel Macron, however, could probably do just as well to try to bring together the various factions within the country's government before talking to his uh, people. Um, Philippe, the last shot that we had of, of Emmanuel Macron before he uh, went off to uh, to have that um, governmental f- Christmas dinner was an appearance on national television to try to persuade France that his immigration laws, which would tighten, on, tighten the rules quite considerably, were an, a necessary shield for the country. Um, he had not just sort of struggled to persuade the French, he had actually failed to persuade any parts of the French government, hadn't he? So when we go into 2024 now, it's not got any better since the Christmas break. No, no, absolutely not. This immigration bill, following another controversial uh, reform, the, the pension reform, which was also passed by Parliament by very narrowly, you know, and against... Uh, almost uh, universal uh, public uh, position. Again, the immigration bill was one which seems to borrow far too much or draw too much on sort of far-right uh, ideas and territories on, on, on immigration. So I think it's been, uh, it's been taking the flag for, for that reason. And I think it's failed to 
convinced the French, the public at large, that it was a, a necessary a good reform, and also he's failed within his own ranks to 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 to, to really convince uh, his own MPs, or at least uh, some of them, that it was um, it was a good it was a good bill. So here we are. Hard facts: Macron didn't get an absolute majority in Parliament uh, following his re-election, so he's got. For each bill uh, to maneuver and, and and seek majorities in the parliament, which normally it gets with uh, the conservative Les Républicains, this time around for the immigration bill he didn't get it. That's why he had to go along a kind of strange coalition of uh, radicalized conservatives and which were themselves deeply taking on board uh, some of Le Pen's policies on immigration. So that's that's really bizarre. So, of course, there's no wonder that there are talks about reshuffle. Uh, that's typical, typically what you do when a government is in, is in a stalemate. You don't know what to do, so you, you're talking about changing the government. Notably, to change also the, the prime minister, Elisabeth Bourne, apparently seems to be on the way out. We don't know yet who's going to su- succeed her. But yes, that's a difficult start to the new year for, for Macron. To have him start off with with talk of a reshuffle is, is not good, is it? Because one wonders what that reshuffle is going to look like. I mean, there has been an, an enormous amount of discussion that every time something bad happens, it seems to be Elizabeth Bonds whose neck is on the block. Yes. And yet she somehow survives another day and then something bad happens and guess what? It's her fault again. I mean, she, you suggest you know, she is obviously going to have to go at some stage, but how does he reshuffle. I mean, he was always one who pulled in ministers from different sides of the political spectrum in order to bring some sort of cool-headed consensus. This isn't going to be that easy this time now, is it? No. And and you're right to stress that Elizabeth Bourne, who several times was said to be on the way out, is, you know, is very resilient. She's still there. Um, she's been there for a very short period of time. Macron was re-elected over a year ago. So normally you may change prime minister in a five-year term, but not no more than twice. If you do it more than twice, it's probably that's your, your government is in disarray. So it's probably, he might be this time and not do it this time around. He might simply change, you know, a few, a few, a few people in in, in government who ask Bond to do that, but frankly, reshuffle is always a bit of a smokescreen. You know, it's really to uh, it's something you do. It's an announcement that you make when you things do not go well for your government. Uh, I don't think that the public, the French, are so into it. They're so interested in it. Uh, they are quite unhappy. The French, being French, you know, quite unhappy with the political situation. This immigration bill. Uh, there's a lot, of course, of discontent uh, socially, economically. So he's got to do something. But when you sort of look into the situation in France, it seems that Macron doesn't seem to have decided yet what to do. And Attica, this borrowing of the far right rhetoric and bringing in immigration. As the you know the great issue that voters are clearly passionate about, uh, when they might not necessarily be as passionate about that as other things such as I don't know cost of living. Um, this is this is a pattern that we are seeing or we've been seeing it here in the United Kingdom, haven't we? Right. Um, and just very recently, the Home Office passed a string of measures. Um, uh, you know, so one can't, for example, it's become harder for even British citizens to to bring a foreign spouse unless they meet a significantly higher income threshold. And you know, you you wonder uh, that Europe is 
you know, moving towards a more nationalistic, uh, populist. I mean, they're, they're gravitating towards these populist leaders. And, and that's why we have the likes of uh, Suella Braverman, uh, you know, leading these these calls and knowing that they're going to get votes when election comes. But the cost of living crisis and, and security issues in the region, and, and we're seeing it now more as uh, Israel continues to bomb uh, Gaza. I mean, we've seen anti-Semitic attacks happen uh, in London. We have people, people who uh, at Palestinian protests also say that they feel unsafe. So these are all kind of the perfect storm for, for people to feel more insecure and paranoid. Uh, and, and I think leaders like, uh, like Le Pen and like uh, Rishi Sunak and his party, for example, right-wing leaders, they, they kind of capture that or they tap into that sentiment. Um, the, it just reminded me what you said of those, the um, far-right um, populist politician Nigel Farage here in the United Kingdom who's, who's part of, I think it's Reform UK is the latest iteration of... Right. Of, of, I struggle to keep track. So do I, <laughs> yes, I don't think you'd be the only one. Um, but yesterday I heard him talk about the, the when he was referring to the, the, the illegal immigrants who cross over the English Channel as young men... We don't know who they are. We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know. We don't know how dangerous or safe they are coming over in these boats. And it's an incredibly simple and powerful way to to dis, to sort of create fear, isn't it? I mean, it is so potent, and it's it really just paints this picture of us versus them. They're coming for our jobs. Uh, the UK is not going to be white anymore, and this is not new. Uh, I can't remember if I've talked about it on this show before, but in 2017, I came here to cover the UK election. And I was outside a polling station um, asking people for their opinions. What's it like? Who did you vote for? And a gentleman uh, walked up to me and said, where did you say that you're from? Uh, And who are you reporting for? And I said, I'm the correspondent for Dawn. And it's a Pakistani newspaper. And he said, sorry, when did you say you're going back to your country? I'm just a little bit nervous because, you know, you people just come in and then you don't leave. And I was appalled and I wrote about it for Dawn uh, in my election coverage that this fear has absolutely penetrated. It's palpable. And come election, we're going to see it play out in the polls. How has France and France's far right recalibrated that sense of fear? Because it was totally unacceptable to be part of the far right. Gosh, as least as I can't remember, 10 years ago now. But it is now we're now in 2024, two years on from the fact that Marine Le Pen came within a, a whisker of getting the Elysee. Yes, I wouldn't say the far right has got fashionable, but at least it has got, I'm afraid, mainstream, which I think in political terms is what the far right wants, which means that it's no longer a kind of a movement or party which no one would see in power uh, at some point. Uh, now, you know, opinion polls are extremely good for the for the far right, which is uh, Le Pen's party is expected to win the uh, the forthcoming European election, largely ahead of the Macron's party and, and, and the left. So uh, it is going from strength to strength. And clearly, we've been talking about immigration. That is really the one issue which has strengthened the far right, which is mainstream parties of the right, centre-right, and sometimes also on the, on the left, sort of uh, thinking that by borrowing some of the ideas or policies on immigration, on the treatment of foreigners, they're going to uh, capture or 
uh, or sort of uh, fight back the far right. That's the opposite, which which happens. You know, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, Marine Le Pen's father used to say when he was leading the, the, the Front National, uh, voters will prefer the original to the copy. And that's exactly what's what's happening. You know. And a quick note before we move on to the Pakistani elections, but talking about making the unpalpable palatable or the unpalatable acceptable. These words from Emmanuel Macron about the, the French actor Gérard Depardieu, a, a man who is now accused of rape, not just as certain sexual predatory natures towards many women that he's worked with. But Emmanuel Macron actually said on on air that not that he necessarily publicly supported him, but that he wasn't quick to condemn him. I mean, how dangerous is that for Macron? Not only did he didn't condemn uh, Depardieu when he was interviewed uh, recently, but he defended him, saying he was even the honor, the pride of France. And he even sort of cast doubt on the documentary which was shot in 2018 in North Korea. This is where the scandal, one of the scandals, because there are so many scandals now surrounding uh, Depardieu. He was seen in this documentary in North Korea, you know, passing extremely gross and, 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 and sexual comments about, about women around. And what was particularly shocking, there was a young girl riding a horse and he made absolutely gross comments that I wouldn't repeat here on there. And of course, that was uh, for is a sort of number one French actor, worldwide famous. And of course, that was a bit of a shock. But until people knew about it, so it seems that now you've got a usual divide in France between those who think, oh, Gérard is not is not a rapist, is uh, just joking, you know, is a sort of. A, a, and others who say, well, look, you know, there are now several testimonies of women coming forward. Now there are allegations of rapes. Uh, these are not about misbehaving or being a bit bit heavy. Uh, it, it's 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 about crimes. So this is where we are. And Macron seems to have made an, yet another faux pas by saying, well, you know, is the honor of France and it's too early to condemn him, etc., etc. So uh, again, uh, Macron here uh, doesn't seem to. To, to, I should add that when Macron was elected, it was at the height of the Me Too movement, right. and which was particularly lively and strong in France. And one of the reasons for that is that France has been for, for decades a very sexist, patriarchal country, as a lot of southern countries. And instead, he, he, when he was elected, he said, that would be the great cause of my, of my term, you know, to, to defend uh, women and also uh, 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 violence against women. And I think that That's why it's a big letdown for a lot of women in France. And as an outsider, when it comes to looking at French politics, I'm really wondering, we call it a faux pas. Is it, it's, it's out of character given what he campaigned for when he got re-elected. But really, how has he dealt with rape allegations within his government? And actions speak louder than words. So look at the kind of messaging and the support he's given to this actor who really should be disgraced. It's astonishing. It's astonishing stuff. Um, you're listening to the Monocle Daily with me, Emma Nelson. Philippe Malia and Attica Raymond are my guests. And let's turn our attention now to next month's elections in Pakistan. The former Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan has been charged in the last few hours with contempt of the Electoral Commission. It's the latest in Mr Khan's legal battle since he was removed from the position of Prime Minister last April. Um, Attica, when I said, oh, let's do, let's do Imran Khan's latest, latest charge, you went, oh, this is nothing. Well, not nothing, but this is, this is no biggie in the big a fight that he faces. Right. No, I think uh, he joked before he was jailed that he's uh, facing about 80 cases ranging from blasphemy to sedition to um, I think 
in, he was held in violation or he's charged with being in violation of the Official Secrets Act, obviously corruption. So he faces a mountain of charges and cases. And it's kind of like whack-a-mole if he's getting bail or he's, he's, he appears to be getting relief uh, in anyone, a new one comes along. This, of course, is about uh, he's being held at, or he's being charged with contempt of uh, in contempt of the Electoral Commission, uh, which is the key poll body that is overseeing and regulating the election process. And it's because, well, leaders of his party and Imran Khan himself in the past have, I suppose, not chosen the best of adjectives um, when they're describing the Election Commission of Pakistan, let's put it that way. And this is ahead, um, Philippe, of an announcement by the Pakistani Human Rights Watch Independent Human Rights Commission saying that there is nothing, there is little evidence to show that the upcoming elections will be free, fair or, or, or credible. This is this is a continuing, very strong narrative that everybody's getting out of Pakistan. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm no expert on, on, uh, on Pakistan politics, but I, what I can say as a political scientist is Pakistan is yet another example in the world, a worrying example of a formal democracy where... Uh, in reality, you know, uh, uh, the sort of the, the, the electoral process is, is, is I should say, rigged uh, in a sense that, you know, you can have a, a sort of a power in the, in the, uh, looming in the background, i.e. the military pulling the strings, you know, uh, making and um, uh, making, you know, governments, prime ministers, sending them to jail, fabricating, you know, evidence against them. And, and that's... Pakistan is not the only example in the world, but that's a very worrying development. You know, you can have the rules of formal rule of a democracy, but in fact, uh, there's a, a great erosion of the of the, the rule of law in practice. And this cannot be underestimated because Pakistan is what one of the top ten most powerful militaries in the world. I mean, this is this isn't one small country which is dealing with corruption. This is this has huge repercussions of everybody, doesn't it? Right. And in Pakistan, it's particularly worrying because although, you know, the military has formally held power through dictatorships and using emergency uh, instruments to take formal power, since 2008, Pakistan has not had a military government. So Pakistan has had elections in 2008, 2013, 2018, and then there's one slated to happen on the 8th of February. But in these successive elections, the role of the military, its favorites, who it decides to keep out, how how the media covers, what it covers, um, is, is so pronounced. And it's more pronounced than ever today. It's, it's almost like deja vu to 2018, but it's worse and it gets worse with every election cycle. But what, it's, what it tells us is the military has woken up to the fact that it doesn't need to formally be in power to exercise that kind of control and influence. Let's move on to um, another government which is seeing a phenomenal changeover. It's a huge, I don't know how we can do enact such an enormous hand breakdown from what you've just laid out as a clearly a severe problem, a long term issue and um, a problem for Pakistan which, which really, really will have repercussions globally. Um, let's just look at Poland now, which is something delightful is happening in Poland. It's changeover in government. We've all been looking at it because people have been hoping that there'll be an abandonment abandonment of the far-right populist regime to a much more pro-Euro, liberal and democratic future. So, you know, the sun is smiling on the pro-Europeans <laughs> in, in, in Poland. And internally, there's been a fascination too, to the point where the YouTube channel of the country's lower house of parliament now has 650,000 followers on YouTube. What's more, when Donald Tusk was endorsed as the country's prime minister last month, cinemas were absolutely packed. It is a joyful moment for democracy, isn't it? I mean, I think it's great. It, it appeals to young voters, uh, people who are 
politically disconnected or out of touch or not interested, but this is a significant section of the population. So why not if you can have someone? I mean, he does have the background of being a, a talent show host or something. So he has the flair uh, to kind of, we're talking about the speaker. Yes, well, he has the speaker. Shimon Halovnia. Exactly. So he has the kind of flair uh, and, and the skills to keep a, a, an audience interested. Um, but uh, I think it bodes very well for democracy if more people are signing up to, to listen to what he has to say. And it bodes well for young people, who, many of whom actually won't have been alive when Donald Tusk was last prime minister in Poland. Yes, well, at least they couldn't vote. I, I, I like your rejoice. That's refreshing. <laughs> it's nice to see that. I, I like the idea, particularly, of people going to the cinema, buying popcorn and watching, you know, the uh, Donald Tusk, uh, you know, being uh, inaugurated and, and, and launching his, his term in, in Parliament. I, I like that. This said, I think politics uh, shouldn't boil down, in my view, to, to, to those uh, sort of um, things. You know, you uh, it's also about uh, serious, complex debates, I'm afraid. And of course, they don't have to be uh, boring and, and, and put people off. But uh, my what I'm getting at is that will the sort of interest, you know, will uh, sort of uh, stay and, and will young people really connect with politics? Because what we're describing here is more a moment, you know, which is very particular in, in, in political life, which is the moment surrounding elections, you know, where you have this sort of spectacular debate on TV and the media now in between. Will the young, will the population at large, you know, uh, still connect with uh, with with politics, with uh, with with the parliament and parliamentary work? We shall see. But at least, yes, that's an attempt to do something a bit different. I mean, what must it be like if you haven't been able to watch entirely impartial television broadcasts, or your your country has been um, subjected to seeing the judiciary having their their claws removed, to universities having their power removed. Suddenly, for, every, for Donald Tusk to rock up and say, OK, everything's open again, let's have a look. And then in the middle of this, to have Mr. Holovnia, Shimon Holovnia, who, who's, he's leading the 2050 party in the new governing, governing coalition. But as speaker, you look, there are countless YouTube clips of best of. I dearly wish someone would translate them because I bet they're absolute winners. Unfortunately, my Polish isn't enough <laughs> to following uh, parliamentary proceedings. I mean, I think young people are watching the news or consuming the news way less on from mainstream and traditional challenge, uh, channels than they ever were. So they're relying on things like TikTok and Instagram. And I think this guy's just woken up to that. He said, well, why should they go there when they can just come directly to our channel, get it from the horse's mouth? It's mildly entertaining. It's going to boost their ratings and his popularity. It's, it's a win-win from his perspective. I love the idea of it being mildly entertaining. Uh, finally, um, to talk about mildly entertaining... Um, Snoop Dogg. Anyone here got any Snoop Dogg albums? Well, we all we've all heard "Drop It, Drop It Like It's Hot," no matter when we were born. <laughs> so, especially that's, you... that's playing in my head. Excellent. Yes. This is this. All right. So that's what Snoop Dogg to to these three souls in this room um, count for. But come twenty twenty four in the Summer Olympics, uh, you'll be seeing Snoop Dogg in Parisian landmarks providing commentary at some of the events, talking to the athletes too. He's been hired by the US channel NBC and this is the kind of thing that we're going to be enjoying. Oh, wow. What is this move called? That's an aerial, a cartwheel without your hands. On that little bitty piece of wood right yes. there? That's what it sounds like, right? <laughs> I, for one, can't wait to hear his commentary. I think I think that was the beam. 
Right. We're having to translate it out of gymnastics into Snoop Dogg and back into gymnastics again. Um, Philippe, as a Frenchman, are you sort of <laughs> embracing... Is, is this another moment to rejoice or are you? Or do you think the French are going to be slightly less impressed? Uh, let's rejoice. Yes, of course. That, that's funny. <laughs> that's entertaining. And I think he's a great entertainer. I think he will speak to an American audience. I don't see... Although probably if any French media would be quite clever, I think also to try to ask to ask to do some extra work and, and, and do something for the French media. That would be funny. I don't know if he could do it in French, but never mind. He could could be translated or something. I think we heard a little on that, a little while ago that he had to be helped with the words wee oui, wee. Oui. Someone had to help <laughs> him. Okay, so that so wouldn't work, yes. We're, 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 we have quite a low bar that we're working from, but, we, you know, much yes. progress. I can't imagine how Snoop Dogg translated French. Um, I mean, I, I can't imagine how that would land. <laughs> for a uh, French audience. Very difficult, difficult. <laughs> I think that would be a great cultural ch- challenge. I, I was just thinking, is there some kind of French Snoop Dogg which could do mm-hmm. the trick and be a bit entertaining? I, I'm not sure. Anyway, they will not ask Depardieu to do the part yes. for sure now. <laughs> but someone famous who could be entertaining, light, humorous, but also speak about sports because that's, after all, a sporting event. And I don't, yeah. Are we going to see other countries thinking, well, Snoop, who's our, you know, just as Philippe was saying that, who's our Snoop Dogg? Which, which slightly incongruous and, and pretty wacky character can we sit there and who's going to think, you know, who's going to go through the rowing? I can't, I can't imagine. Because <laughs> I think the British will, will be all quite British about it. The French, seriously? And, oh, no, you can, you, can take yourself, you can take the mickey out of yourselves pretty well, can't you? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Le- le- we do it less well than the British, to be fair. Okay. But yes, we, and, we can. But I mean, I, I for one will be watching Snoop Dogg's commentaries simply because it's something that no one's ever tried before. Right. And I think, I mean, I was just looking at as to what, I mean, does he have a sporting <laughs> interest? Like, why have they picked him? And it's a, it's a purely business decision. Yes. People are into it. You're going to watch and look out for it. So will I. And, and I think because the US is setting this trend, I expect to see... I don't know, Kanye West, the Kardashians, Lady Gaga, who else is going to be doing commentary on sporting events in the future? Who knows? Hmm, not sure about them. Um, <laughs> who would you like to see do a bit of commentary or, or any, but I'm just racking my brains because at the moment Snoop Dogg seems to be the perfect person to come and guide me through random sports uh, at 3am. Well, a French person? Uh, anyone. Anyone. Well, I, I think... Um, <sighs> I, I, I'm a bit lost for words there. I think it's it's... Anyone who would be would be equivalent of Snoop Dogg in the sense of you know cracking a few jokes, being uh, light enough, entertaining, but of course with with some uh, some knowledge uh, about about sports. You know the what's you know the Olympics is about sports. So I, I don't know if you could just come there and just uh, along and and and, and just uh, ignore the event. No, that, that, that's not possible. <laughs> Thank you both to Philippe Malia and Attica Raymond for the moment. Uh, let's turn now to the National Portrait Gallery in Washington, D.C., best known for its exhibition on America's presidents, a gallery of portraits, all of past American leaders from George Washington to Donald Trump. Well, after leaving the space, the next exhibition you see is on what the gallery calls U.S. imperialism and the War of 1898. This show looks at U.S. expansion towards the Asia-Pacific at the end of the 19th century. And Monocle's Chris Chermak toured the exhibition with its curators and reflects on America's beginnings as a superpower and its enduring role in the Pacific today. Like the President's Gallery just before it, the War of 1898 exhibition starts with a portrait of a president. 
This is the artwork that people see when they come into the exhibition. It's a portrait of President William McKinley, who was the president during the War of 1898. And it's by a Puerto Rican artist whose name is Francisco Oyer Sestero, also known as Francisco Oyer. This is Taina Carajol, one of two curators taking me on a tour of the exhibition. The portrait of McKinley shows him holding a map of Puerto Rico. The map has the date of America's invasion of the island on the 25th of July, 1898, during its war with Spain. And the painting itself is dated by the artist on the 18th of October, 1898, when Spain officially handed Puerto Rico over to the United States. What's fascinating about this work is also the fact that you could replace that map by a map of the Philippines, by a map of Guam, Hawaii, by a map of Cuba even. And the metaphor would still hold, you know, that the future of these lands was in the hands of the United States and of McKinley. It's almost like McKinley is grabbing hold of it. I mean, that's, that's essentially what this shows. And that's a long tradition in painting, Western painting, right? Depicting maps, depicting landscapes as symbols of territory that belongs to someone, that is in the, under the control of someone. America's soft power to this day is wrapped up in an ideal, that of democracy and self-determination. This exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery in Washington challenges that. It sort of wraps up a number of conflicts and conquests together under the umbrella of the War of 1898, to include the U.S. wars with Spain, with the Philippines, as well as the annexations of Puerto Rico, Cuba, Guam, and Hawaii. The exhibition also highlights the debate that was happening within the United States itself. There's a portrait of the author, Mark Twain, for example, a vocal opponent of U.S. expansionism at this time. If you were to ask someone, when did the U.S. become a global power? They would say, oh, you know, World War II. And this is an exhibition that stands to address the previous history of the United States that's less known when it became a hegemonic power or a world influence by seizing these islands overseas and by expanding its boundaries beyond the continental borders. This is Kate LeMay, the second curator of the exhibition. Together with Taina, the two visited 74 different exhibitions around the world over a period of about six years to build the collection that you see at the Portrait Gallery today. The sweet spot of shows that we curate that are particularly successful, it hits that sweet spot when it actually has very good art as well as intriguing and interesting biography that all connects in order to tell a more complete story of the, of the United States. The goal of the exhibition was also to tell the stories from the artists and people who had been colonized by the United States in 1898, bringing a different perspective to the U.S. Capitol than is commonly heard. It was special to know that we had a place to tell our stories and hopefully that people could understand. It certainly isn't something that is taught in textbooks. This is Leona Hamano. She's the curator of the Friends of Yolani Palace in Honolulu, Hawaii. The palace lent the National Portrait Gallery the exhibition's most imposing work, a giant portrait of Hawaii's last monarch, Queen Yokolani, who was overthrown in 1893. The portrait blends Hawaiian and Victorian fashion and was commissioned in part to show that Hawaii's monarchy was on a level with the kings and queens of Europe at the time. In 1898, Queen Yokolani traveled to Washington to lobby for the restoration of her throne. Hamano says the fact that her portrait is now hanging in Washington 
is particularly symbolic for Hawaiians. It's the first time the Queen's portrait has traveled abroad. It was a very emotional day for us all here at the palace from the moment that it's being removed off the wall, as if it was an embodiment of the Queen herself, that we were taking her off the wall and escorting her off to D.C., Another reason this exhibition matters for today is because it basically charts the genesis of America's influence in Asia. And other than Hawaii, no country was more important to those ambitions than the Philippines. First and foremost, in the Filipino point of view, it's very important to, to learn about how the Filipinos uh, fought for their independence no? since 1896. No? Uh, and uh, how did we form our government? This is Emmanuel Calairo chairman of the National Historical Commission of the Philippines. He says he's appreciative of the effort this exhibition has put in to tell the story from the side of the Philippines, right down to describing the conflict that began in 1898 as a war between two nations. In the narrative, no, uh, in the uh, CITRA board, uh, it mentions about Philippine-American war. No? And uh, when we speak about war, uh, we are recognizing two contending states. But in the, uh, the usual uh, conventional American uh, history books, narrative, no? uh, it mentions about the Filipino insurrection against the United States. But Calairo also says that Filipinos generally consider their U.S. colonists to be more benevolent and progressive than the Spanish rulers before them. While today that U.S. influence also acts as a bulwark against the influence of China. Indeed, the whole point of America's conquests and annexations back in those days was to establish a sort of beachhead across the Pacific. In the eyes of curator Kate LeMay, this is part of what makes their exhibition so relevant for today. At the end of the exhibition, Kate points to a small picture that she's particularly proud of uncovering. It depicts the commissioners of Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines all meeting together in Washington in December of 1898 to plead their case for independence, as Spain and the United States negotiated the peace deal that would see their territories change from one colonial power to another. We didn't know that all these men met each other and probably were maybe in the same hotel in this photograph. So the power of portraiture in the sense of an archival document is really interesting here. Until the end of February, their stories are being brought together once again here at the National Portrait Gallery in the U.S. Capitol. For Monocle in Washington, I'm Chris Chermack. Thank you, Chris. And that's all we have time for today's edition of the Monocle Daily. A big thanks to my panellists, Philippe Marlier and Attica Raymond. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Monica Lillis. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nickel. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. For now, from me, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. 